Let's take our Bibles again and turn together to the portion of Scripture that we've read in John chapter 13. John chapter 13. Just going to read the verse 21 as we come to pray. Again, central to the whole section. Verse 21 says, When Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit, and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, not one of you shall betray me. Let's bow together in prayer again, a solemn portion of the word of God. Seek the Lord's help to rightly discern it and apply it to our lives again tonight. Let's all pray. Eternal God and Father, humbly again we come before Thee. We realize we're students of the Word. And, O Lord, we understand that we cannot understand the Word without the help of the Spirit of God. Give help in preaching and in hearing. Open up the eyes of every hearer. Dear Father, they would not only hear the Word, but see Christ. That their hearts would be opened to behold the Gospel. Help us to see our Savior this evening. Strengthen our faith. Bless our souls. Do us good, we pray. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Just in reading this passage, the words of verse 10 and 11 cry out for more detail and more explanation. As the Lord washes the feet of the disciples, he himself says, Ye are clean, but not all. Surely the disciples must have been arrested in their minds with such a word. John gives the explanation in hindsight and says, For he knew who should betray him, therefore said he, Ye are not all clean. And whilst we read these things very quickly, there would have been some time between those words and then what follows in the Lord's discourse, having given the instruction to the disciples to also wash their feet one for the other. You see, John has been leading his readers on in this matter. You turn back to John chapter 6 and you'll see already John has given information regarding this traitor in the midst of the disciples. John chapter 6, as there are those who leave the Lord's ministry, Peter makes the assertion, Thou hast the words of eternal life. And Jesus says in verse 70, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. Again, I've got to point this out, and maybe it's obvious to you all. But Jesus does not announce Judas at that point. John explains it looking backwards. By the time the Lord simply says, one of you is a devil. And the one of you is explicitly one of the twelve. I can't help but wonder what was discussed at that time amongst the disciples. And so now we come sometime later, we come to the upper room, and again the Lord is repeating the same sort of thoughts. Ye are not all clean. And I really do believe there's real drama in John's detailing of the events. Jesus knows all about Judas, but the others seemingly don't have a clue. And the Lord, in his wisdom, is going to use the evil acts of Judas for the eternal good of the eleven and of all of us. The Lord in his kindness 
is going to take what's happened with Judas and use it to be a blessing to our souls. Now, what I want to try to do tonight is I want to, I want to outline the events and really just try to work our way through the verses little by little to give some detail before we then work out some of the truths that come out of this particular section. And so you'll see in your outline then there's one, two, three, four, nine, nine S's there to help us sort of guide our way through uh, the actual verses before us. And the first thing to note then in verse 18 is the quotation of Scripture. So remember we said, the Lord has already hinted at the fact that one of the disciples is not who he says he is. And so verse number 18, I speak not of you all. Now there he's looking back to verse number 17. If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. And he's making the point that those who know the will of Christ and do the will of Christ are indeed blessed of God. And therefore are the truly happy ones in this world. There is no genuine happiness outside of Christ. And that is emphasized in verse number 18. I speak not of you all. In other words, those out of Christ are not truly happy as the Lord describes here. They are not truly blessed. And he's now drawing attention on the fact that one of the twelve is again not who he seems. Now when it says in verse 18, I know whom I have chosen, I think that is a parallel to what we've just seen in verse number 70 of chapter 6. Have not I chosen you twelve? Now there are those who see verse number 18 as referring to all the elect in all ages. I know whom I have chosen. Now, that's of course true. The Lord knows those who are his. That's not in debate. But the context here, I believe, is saying, I know whom I have chosen to be apostles. But that the scripture may be fulfilled, he that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. And the Lord is here quoting Psalm 41. You turn back there, you'll see it in your own Bibles, the 41st Psalm, and you'll see there, this Psalm is a Psalm that emphasizes the trouble and the trial of David at the hand of a familiar friend. Now, all it says in verse 18 of, of John's Gospel is, He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. But over in Psalm 41, again, you have the, the language of this in verse number 9. Yea, mine own familiar friend, in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. Again, it's very obvious here. And there are those who suggest this is more than likely a reference to Hithophel and his treacherous behavior towards David. But the purpose of the passage, in a, in, a, in a messianic sense, is to show that the Lord is betrayed by one with whom he shares bread. That in that culture is a mark of intimacy and communion. A friend that shared the same table is the one who lifts up his heel against the Lord. To lift the heel, again we're told, is a terminology, a metaphorical description of treachery of a high order, of really doing violence against the one who is, in this case, your familiar friend. One thing that is really worth noting Taking the metaphor of the heel, it is the very heel of Judas that Christ has washed in the previous verses. You know, it's a real challenge. 
There are those who may treat us badly, who want to do all manner of harm toward us. And yet the Lord's example is this. Treat those with kindness and humility, even Christ knowing who Judas was. Again, that's beyond the scope of our message tonight. We're seeing here the scriptures quoted. Again, that itself is important because what you see next is a statement of purpose. Verse number 19, having mentioned the scripture, he says this, Now I tell you before it come, that when it is come to pass, ye may believe that I am he. Now that's got really a a twofold sense to it. One, that they'll understand that the Lord has explained scripture regarding this. And also that he was able to predict who it was who would betray him before it comes. Things that you and I could not do but the God of heaven can do. And so it says, ye may believe that I am. And again, it is generally understood, these two words in the Greek, ego I may, are the way that the I am of Jehovah in the Old Testament is quoted in the Greek. And the Lord is saying is, when this comes to pass, in light of what I've said, you will believe that I am. That I am the Son of God, co-eternal and quick with the Father. The Lord It says in verse number one of our chapter, loves his own unto the end. And what we're seeing here is the Lord's loving action towards his 11 disciples by revealing what's happening here in such a way that their faith is strengthened. Again, allow me just to drop in a little application here. The Lord's love for his disciples has the end of strengthening their faith. If we say we love others in the church, the end of that love must be to strengthen their faith, to build them up and not to pull them down, to do what is for their good spiritually and not to harm them in anything regarding the things of God. So that's a statement of purpose. I'm just going to mention verse number 21. When Jesus thus said he was troubled in spirit, that's the soul, the turmoil of our Savior's soul. And he goes through this turmoil as he testifies yet again that one of them shall betray him. Still at this point, no names given, no detail, simply asserting the fact that one of his familiar friends will betray him. Now this requires more examination, we'll come to this uh, later on. Which leads on to the fourth thing, which is a matter of surprise. Because then you get that in the next verse, verse number 22. Then the disciples looked one on another, doubting of whom he spake. Again, what's often said there is that clearly Judas was very good at hiding who he was. But there's something else there. And that is the humility of the disciples to wonder, could it even be me? So yeah, we often look at this and say, well, Judas must have been really, really good. And he was. But the disciples had such a humility And so Mark tells us they began to be sorrowful and to say unto him one by one, is it I? Again, we've got to be very careful here. We have assurance of salvation. We have integrity before God. But if you think you stand, take heed lest you fall. There is a holy place for humility to ask yourself the question, could it be me? Peter himself, of course, 
makes the assertion later on that he will go wherever the Lord goes. And of course, he ends up denying the Lord in that fashion. Surprise, is it I? Then you get Simon Peter's intervention here. Again, this is somewhat challenging. Verse number 22. Then the disciples looked one on another, doubting whom he spake. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. And again, for the sake of argument right now, I'm just going to simply assert this refers to John, the author of the, of the gospel. He is the one who is nearest to the Lord at this time. And again, the language seems to indicate that they are reclining around a table. They're not sitting on chairs like the Roman Catholic artists would draw the Last Supper, but rather they are reclining, lying down around the table. And in that fashion, they would lie, if you like, back to front. And so it was possible for John to turn his head around towards the breast of the Savior and then speak quietly to your Lord face to face. If you can try to imagine that, I'm not going to uh, demonstrate that physically here now. You can try to imagine the scene there, that they're lying in such a way that John and the Lord can have a very private, intimate conversation. And it's in light of that that Peter says in verse 24, or Simon Peter beckons in verse 24, that he should ask who it should be of whom he spake. Again, it seems the case here that Peter is not in the immediate vicinity of the Lord. And so there's some form of non-verbal communication, like a, a nod here, like Peter catches John's eyes. And the suggestion comes uh, that John should ask the Lord. Now, I wonder, again, I don't want to speculate too much. I wonder, is Peter cautious? Because, again, he's been the one who said, wash all of me. And the Lord says, no, be careful. You must have some part in me in that previous discussion back in verse 9 and following. I don't know. But I do know that Peter's signal to John is taken by John in such a way that the Lord then gives a sign. The next thing in our list, the sign is given. You've got it there, verse number 26. Jesus answered, that is answered John, he it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. And when I dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And there's all manner of thoughts regarding this one also. Yeah, so it's amazing. If you read too many commentaries, you get your, your head in a spin. But there is general consensus here that the Lord's words to John were expressed very discreetly, if you like, in a whispered tone. And it seems to be the Lord's intention that John would know the sign, but the other disciples did not pick the sign up. You've got that down in verse number 28. Now no man at the table knew for what intent he spake this unto him. And I believe what's happening here, John is saying, he's the author. No one else knew what's happening here. But he had received the sign. Again, I'm going to say more of that in a few moments. But the sign itself is interesting. Let me read two the words. Uh, I believe this is pink. He says this. The sign given by Christ to identify the betrayer was suggestive and solemn. It was a mark of honor for the host to give a portion to one of the guests. The Lord had appealed to Judas' conscience in verse 21. Now he appeals to his heart. The sop was most probably a piece of unleavened bread now dipped in the sauce prepared for the eating of the paschal lamb. That Judas accepted it shows the unthinkable lengths to which he carried his hypocrisy. Determined as he was to perpetrate the foulest treachery, 
yet he hereby renews his pledge of friendship. That's some of the thoughts here. This is a, it's a sign of, uh, of, the, of the host giving a familiar friend the bread which you would then consume. And so it's dipped in some sort of soup or sauce, and it's then passed to Judas, and he takes it. Now here, I want to address one question. There's various thoughts as to whether or not Judas was present at the institution of the Lord's Supper. He said, well, this is not a very important supper. Well, it's got, it's got important application. For there, there are those who say that it is, again, inevitable that they're hypocrites at the Lord's Supper, and Judas was there. And people with very, very good authority suggest, indeed, Judas was at the institution of the Lord's Supper. They go to Luke chapter 22, turn back to Luke 22. This is just an aside regarding your own studies and uh, help to try to understand these things. Luke 22, and there are those who read verse 21. And so you've got the, the institution there in verse 19, he took the bread and broke it. And then verse 21 says, But behold, the hand of him that betrayeth me is with me on the table. And so they say, well, here's clear evidence that Judas is present as the Lord's Supper is instituted. But it's worth remembering that Luke is not always precise in his chronology. He is more thematic and topical as he outlines his gospel. And so you look across to Matthew chapter 26, Look what Matthew says, and this is one of the challenges sometimes in harmonizing the gospel narratives. Matthew chapter 26, and the verse number 25. Matthew 26 and verse 25. Then Judas, which betrayed him, answered and said, Master, is it I? He said unto him, Thou hast said. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave the disciples and said, Take it, this is my body. Now my suggestion is, between verse 25 and 26, the disciples all having said, Is it I? The Lord then having given the sign, not only to the sop, but also directly to Judas now, Judas goes out, and it is night. And one of the ways to explain that is in this practice of giving the sop. And the sop may well have been a practice in an earlier stage of the Passover meal where there were several courses and several different cups drunk. And then that's why when it comes to the cup later on, the Lord says, I will not drink again. And so there may well have been some involvement, if you like, in the Passover meal, but Judas then goes out before the Lord then says, this is my body broken for you. And my understanding I don't believe Judas was there when the Lord teaches what the Lord's Supper is, given the personal nature of the covenantal meal to those receiving it. And so one way of working through these difficulties is to see the salt being given earlier, and then as John says, having received the salt, went immediately out, and it was night. Now, I'm not going to fight with you in that matter. It's a matter of debate, and there are various schools of thought about the subject. For our purpose tonight in John's Gospel, it is very, very simple. The sign is given, and at least one person must know the sign. You see, if you read verse number uh, 28, no man at the table knew for what intent, it undermines the promise of verse number 19. 
Now I tell you before it come, that when it's come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Someone has to understand what's being said. And it was John. No one else got it, but John got it. And so there's this quiet, intimate interaction between John and Jesus at this point. That's how I see it. Again, we can discuss it. But the sign is given. That then leads to satanic activity. Because it says there, and again, a very, a very sober way, verse 27, And after the sop, Satan entered into him. And what a vivid way to describe it. The food enters Judas, and Satan follows the food. We'll say more of that later on also. We then see this matter of speed. And it's the Lord's words to Judas in verse number 27. Then Jesus said unto him, That thou doest, do quickly. The Lord's instruction to Judas is again hard to be precise what it means. Many suggest it is a final appeal to his conscience. It's like the Lord, as it says in Matthew, you've said it, this verbal communication of Jesus to Judas in a final appeal to his conscience. Jesus demonstrating to Judas that he knows what he's doing. He says, you think you've hidden this? It's not hidden from me. A final dagger to the conscience of Judas, perhaps. Others see it as a word of judgment. No room for repentance now. Too late. Go and do what you'll do. Others really, and I think this is most likely, others are a simple statement of fact. The Lord knows the time has come. Judas, you've set your mind to reject and to betray me. Go and do it. And so Judas leaves speedily. Speed is here again seen in his departure. Verse number 30 having received the salt, went immediately out. Which leads finally to the setting here. Verse number 30. He then, having received the salt, went immediately out, and it was night. Now here I believe John is making a point. He's not simply observing the situation or the timing of this event, although that itself is important when you come to Garden of Gethsemane later on, because that was also at night. But turn back, please, to John chapter 1. And here I want to take a few moments just to, to survey this theme in the Gospel of John. And then you'll see the significance, I believe, of those words, and it was night. John chapter 1, verse 5. The light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. John has this theme in his Gospel. That Jesus Christ is the light of the world, and this light is shining in darkness. That does not mean, of course it doesn't mean, that the Lord only engaged in his ministry at night. It's a metaphorical term for the darkness of the world and the darkness of a world under the power of Satan. Darkness. You'll see it also in chapter 3 and the verse number 19. And this is the condemnation that light is come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Again, describing the, the stark difference between light and darkness. But those who are ungodly out of Christ, their hearts delight in that which is iniquitous. They love darkness. And they will not love Christ or come to Christ lest their deeds be reproved. Darkness and light. Chapter 8 and the verse number 12. 
Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Again, you see, there's a continued theme in the Gospel of John. There's assurance that those who follow Christ will not go out, and it was night, but rather be with him in the light of his testimony and communion around the table of that supper. John chapter 12 and the verse number 35. I trust by now you've got the point, but let me just emphasize it all the more. John 12, verse 35. Then Jesus said unto them, Yet a little while is the light with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness come upon you. For he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whither he goeth. In that sense of the, the lostness of lost souls, wandering in darkness, danger to their own souls. Then verse number 36, 46, sorry, chapter 12. I am come a light into the world, that who serve believe in me should not abide in darkness. Now, given the emphasis of that theme, surely John is making a point when you get to chapter 13, verse number 30, it was night. Luke makes this point. When the Lord is being under trial, he says to those accusing him, I was dealing with you in the temple. He stretched forth no hands against me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. The devil has entered Judas, and Judas walks in darkness and not light. It is a foreshadowing of the final judgment of the ungodly, that those who reject Christ will hear this fearful words from Christ, depart from me, and they are cast into outer darkness. Don't walk in darkness tonight. Don't follow Judas to leave the house of God tonight and go out and it is night. Physically true this evening. But as you leave this place where the gospel is being preached and you walk out into this world, make sure you are not walking out and it's dark in your soul. Lest you're plunged into outer darkness forever and forever to join Judas who went to his own place. It's a very sobering end of that particular narrative. So that's really my attempt to deal with some of the details in this passage. And again, there are some things that are hard to be certain about. But that leads me then to really draw out some of the, uh, the truths that come out of this. And we'll move very quickly through these things. First of all, I want you to please note the reasons given for Judas' betrayal. And you'll see in your outline, I've suggested six. And again, I'll, I'll go very quickly. Six reasons in the scriptures as to why Judas acts as he does. Undoubtedly, it is a service in the work of God. He is performing an act in the will of God unto redemption of sinners. Verse 27, Jesus says that thou doest do quickly. And then verse 31, now is the Son of Man glorified. And the language there speaks of the Lord Jesus accomplishing redemption through his death, burial, and resurrection. And so you're seeing that the actions of Judas directly contribute to the salvation of sinners. Judas facilitates the arrest, which leads to the cross. Reason number one. Reason number two is because of sin in the heart of Judas himself. 
Judas does what he wants to do. He is not forced or coerced to act in this manner. And again, John gives a hint in that regard. Back in chapter 12, and the verse number 4 and following, it's the, the events in Simon's house at Bethany, and there is Mary uh, using the ointment of spikenard, very costly. Uh, and Judas, verse number 4, is mentioned, the one who will betray him, verse number 5, why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had a bag and bare what was put therein. And so what you see in Judas' betrayal of the Lord is him acting according to his nature. Yes, Satan is active, but Judas does what his heart wants to do. He's a materialistic, greedy, covetous man, and he gets money from the acts behaving according to his nature. Which does not deny, thirdly, that the reason for his betrayal of Jesus is because of Satan's activity. Again, verse number 2 of our chapter, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot. And then down in verse number 27 again, after the salt, Satan entered into him. That corresponds with John chapter 6 that says that Judas himself is a devil in the sense that he is such an agent of the devil that he functions and does the devil's purpose. Now Judas is clearly a pawn in the devil's game to destroy the Lord Jesus. And we saw over in chapter 13 verse number 2 that what you see here really is the outworking of Genesis 3.15 and the conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Satan certainly has a role here. But Satan's role does not absolve Judas of his responsibility. He is not an automatic person acting in such a way who can say before God, Satan made me do it. He goes out and it is night. He is now in darkness in that sense. Departing from God. Away from God. And it's his own fault. Fourthly, a fourth reason, of course, is that Judas must, must betray Christ to fulfill the Scriptures. Again, that's what he says in verse number 18. But that the Scripture may be fulfilled. This has to happen for the Scripture to be fulfilled. And these fulfillments are to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. They're to help you, listener, tonight to believe that Jesus is the Christ. All of these things come to pass. Hundreds of years earlier, a prediction... And the language of Psalm 41 clearly goes beyond David. In the psalm itself, there are clear proofs it goes beyond David. That you would understand that Jesus Christ is indeed the Messiah, the promised redeemer of sinners. Which leads, fifthly, to the fact that this betrayal is itself a support to faith. Not only the scripture being fulfilled, but the Lord's ability to prophesy the future and thus strengthen the faith of the apostles and us. Verse number 19. I'm telling you this beforehand that when it comes to pass, you may believe. The Lord is using this for our eternal good. That we would believe that Jesus is indeed the Son of God when we look back and read these accounts and we'd say, yes, he's the Christ. Remember, that's why John's writing. John chapter 20. These things are written. That you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God. 
they are written in such a way to convince us that he is indeed the I am of God. He is the great eternal I am. Now what you see then in verse number 20 is a self-significant. Because people have wondered, how does verse 20 fit in all of this? So verse 19 says, ye may believe. We get that bit. Then verse 20, verily, verily, or amen, amen, truly, truly, I say unto you, he that receiveth whomsoever I send receiveth me. And he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. How did, what, is, what? How does that fit in here? What's the connection of thought? Well, verse number 18, or verse number 19, sorry, says, that ye may believe. Now, in John's gospel, to receive Christ is to believe in Christ. John chapter 1. As men have received him, he had the power to come to the sons of God, even to believe on his name. To receive Christ is to believe on Christ. And what the Lord is saying here is, you will understand Judas' act, and you will believe. And as you believe, I will then send you into the world. John 17, verse 18. And as you preach Christ, those who receive you receive me, and those who receive me receive the Father that sent me. And what he's saying here is, faith is vital to gospel ministry. And in gospel ministry, you are passing on your faith to others. Your personal convictions are vital for your preaching. And as you believe, you then encourage others to receive Christ. And they also come to receive Christ. So that Judas' betrayal is necessary for the ongoing faith of those who hear the gospel after the apostles. People like you and me. Because we receive the apostles, therefore we receive Christ. And we receive the Father. And so this whole narrative is given to us in God's kindness to help you with your doubts. To help you with the questions you have. I wonder, is Jesus really the Savior? Well, here's another proof for you. There's so many, but here's yet another. Jesus was able to predict that Judas would betray him before it comes to pass. So we see that. Sixthly, finally, this occurs because of the sovereign appointment of God. Truly the Son of Man goeth as it was determined, but woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. Luke 22, verse 22. All of this, the fact that's prophesied in Scripture, the fact the Lord knows all about it, all of this is happening because of the sovereign appointment of God. Judas is indeed the son of perdition, appointed unto this task and unto destruction. But God's sovereignty over this does not nullify the other reasons. It does not excuse Judas' sin. It does not deny satanic influence. But rather, Judas' sin and satanic influence are all under the sovereign authority of God. That's a comfort, by the way. That all that takes place in this world is under the sovereign governance of God. Some reasons why Judas betrays Jesus. Another thing to note, though, in verse number 21 again, it is the response of the Lord. Because you've got to stop and consider this. 
Verse 21 says, When Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit. Troubled. The word speaks of agitating, stirring up like water. You know, taking a stick and stirring up the water and getting the bubble to go. That's the, that's the idea. It's used in this sense of inward commotion to disturb calmness, to disquiet, to make restless, even to render anxious or distressed in some way. The very same word is used in John chapter 14, verse 1, let not your heart be troubled. And yet it says in John 13, he was troubled in spirit. When we get to John 14, we'll look at that in more detail. But for now, please note Jesus is said to be troubled in spirit. Only John uses this term regarding the Savior. And he does so on three occasions. Back in chapter 11, and the verse number 33, at the grave of Lazarus, it says there, When Jesus saw therefore her weeping, and the Jews also weeping which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. Troubled as he stands in the presence of those who are weeping over the death of his friend. Then chapter 12 and the verse number 27. Now is my soul troubled and what shall I say? Father save me from this hour but for this cause came I unto this hour. And the sense seems to be there that the Lord is recognizing the fact that the hour has come. Verse 23. He's going to be glorified. He has to die and be buried to bring forth fruit. And his soul is troubled in a way that will continue to be so all the way to Gethsemane until he says, not my will, but thine be done. A trouble of soul of the Savior. But here, in John 13, what struck me just in reading this again in the past week is the Lord knew all about these events. He knew about these events as the Son of God. He was the Son of God who had planned these events in the Council of the Trinity. And even as man, the Lord Jesus clearly understood these things. He knew Judas was the one. Jesus had a perfect knowledge of Scripture and a perfect ability to discern Judas's heart. So as the God-man, he knew all about these events and had no difficulty in pinpointing Judas as the one who would fulfill Psalm 41. And yet, he says in verse 27, that thou doest do quickly. He is submissive to the will of God in this matter. He is submissive to the will of God in order to redeem sinners. He is the sinless Savior. Without sin or blemish, he is pure internally and externally. He is the pristinely pure Savior. And yet John says he was troubled in spirit. What do we make of this? Well, in part, we can say this is an expression of the human pain of encountering betrayal by a familiar friend. The agony of such an experience. The Lord is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He knows as a true man with a reasonable human soul, he knows the agony of being betrayed by those who are close to us. Dear child of God, tonight he knows when you're hurting because those close to you have hurt you in some way. 
He knows your trouble in spirit. He himself was troubled in spirit. And just as an aside, if you are tempted to hurt someone or betray someone who is close to you, please remember that act troubled Jesus in his spirit. We can glean the comfort of Jesus here, knowing us in our humanity, but there's also a tremendous challenge that we would not be guilty of betraying or hurting those who are close to us. It troubled Jesus in spirit. But beyond that sense of human pain, of betrayal, surely there is also here an expression of the sinless Savior's aversion to evil and sin. He's in the presence of Judas, who has set his mind to betray him. And as Judas continues to persist in his determination, the Lord is not joyful but troubled. This is what it is to grieve the Lord. To be in the presence of Christ and determine in your heart to sin is to bring grief to the Lord and not joy. But it's also worth noting, and this is for your comfort, it is consistent to submit to God's will and yet be troubled by it. The Lord is not arguing with the Father in this passage. He is fully submissive to the Father's will, and yet his spirit is troubled. Now, I knew this was coming tonight. And so this morning in Bible class and also in the morning service, I've taken the time to emphasize time and time again that you do not know the mind of God. You cannot judge the mind of God. You do not know what God is doing in your life in providence. But I do not want you to listen to that sort of teaching and presume that you can therefore be stoic in all of your troubles. That basically your troubles will not do anything to your soul. Because I trust in God, therefore I feel nothing. I'm entirely apathetic when it comes to my troubles. Apathy in the place of troubles is not a mark of a godly humanity. Encountering sin and suffering the cost of sin should trouble our souls without questioning our faith, without causing us to argue with God. The sinless Savior here is perfectly submissive to the Father's will and yet is troubled in soul without sinning for one second. Be comforted, dear child of God. It is proper for you to be troubled in your soul when providence comes before you as you live under the consequence of the fall. But do not use that trouble to cause you to fight against God. Be troubled and rest in the providence of God. It's a very remarkable verse, and I believe it was worthy of our attention for a few moments this evening. But at least the final thing, and that is the result of Judas's betrayal. And here I'm just going to hint for where we'll go in the coming week. He then, having received the salt, verse 30, went immediately out, and it was night. Therefore, when he was gone out, please note the connection there. John is making the point very, very clearly. When he was gone out, in light of his departure, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. 
What the Lord is saying here is, the timer has started. There is no going back. Not that that was even possible, but he's announcing the certainty of the Lord's death. Because verse number 31 says, The Son of Man is glorified. God is glorified in him. If God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself and shall straightway glorify him. That corresponds to chapter 17, verse 4 and 5. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which it gives me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I have with thee before the world was. We're going to come back to this next week and look at all this glorified, glorified, glorified in some detail. For now I simply see that the glorification of Jesus Christ is a reference to his death, burial, and resurrection. And so what he's saying here is, Judas has gone out, and the result of his betrayal will be the glorifying of the Savior as he dies to purchase our redemption. It corresponds to Philippians chapter 2. He was obedient to death of the cross, wherefore God hath also highly exalted him. The death of Christ brings glory to the triune God. But for our purposes right now, Judas is doing the will of God to rescue mankind from sin. Like Pharaoh before him, his heart is hardened and God is sovereign over that that hardened heart. The mystery of the will of God, yet the wisdom of the will of God, superintending all of this, Satan's work, Judas' sin, but working it out in such a way that you can stand here tonight and say, he has paid it all. All to him I owe. God so orchestrated human history that you could sing that tonight and sing words that are true. Don't trivialize the gospel. Don't minimize the sovereignty of God. Bow down before God your maker and trust in Christ the Savior. This is truth. Walk ye in it. Let's pray together, please. Eternal God and Father, we look to Thee again that You give help, O God, in the proper application of the Word. As we leave this place, you'd help us undertake those things that are of yourself in the Word tonight. That they'd be drawn out into our souls. You'd help us, O Lord, to again make the application that we need to make for our own hearts tonight. For those out of Christ, may they see darkness and seek after the light of Christ. For those, O Lord, who are wrestling with dark providences, May they see Christ and know one who is touched with the feeling of their infirmities. And grant them grace to help in time of need. Bless these studies to your souls. As we work our way through this gospel, we pray that you'd help us, O Lord, to see our Savior. And to love him more and more. Thank you for the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Savior of sinners. We worship thee again tonight. Praying in Jesus' name. Amen.